0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Incremental Gains podcast. The episode you're about to hear was a long-form interview that I had the pleasure of sitting down with a gentleman called Tom Boardman. Tom has a remarkable story about his time in the military during World War 2 I'm not going to tell you too much about that now because all will be revealed during the conversation. But when Tom served in the military, he was actually taken prisoner by the Japanese and survived three and a half years in a concentration camp. He was working on the the infamous Burma-Thailand Railway. Unfortunately, not long after this conversation took place, Tom passed away at the age of 99. So this is one of the last times we hear this story told by by the great man himself. Please listen till the end. There are some great gems that Tom picks out as to how our current generation and even ourselves can can cope with adversity relating to what he went through and how we how we dealt with grim and dire situations during the the concentration camps. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Thank you very much. Right, Tom, thanks very much for inviting us to your home and allowing yeah. us to talk to you today. Yeah. All we want to do really is just get your side of the story. You tell us about your, your experiences yeah, during yeah. the the prison war agree. camps and
1: Well um of course my story starts uh, in 1939 when I joined up. Right. Um, my work colleague of mine uh, came to me one morning, I sat at my desk in, in the private hire department where I worked at Lancashire United Transport Limited and suggested we joined up. I said you must be joking. <laughs> he said no I'm serious Tom. Um, He'd been my school pal Hall at the time and uh, he said we can get in the regiment we fancy. And uh, so we went up to Bolton. I agreed after a few days. Went up to Bolton and to the recruitment office there and found they wanted clerks, amongst other things, were race men, storekeepers and... Uh, General RA, right. Service Corps, all, all the branches, so we fancied the, doing the job we were doing, at all my uh, clerical work. So um, we joined, both of us joined the RAOC, Royal Army Ordnance Corps. Right. And the following day, we, we were on our way to Portsmouth, to Hilsey Barracks which was the, then the headquarters of the Royal Army Ordnance Corps mm-hmm. to begin our training. So um, we got down there okay and started training straight away. And uh, we found ourselves in the ammunition depot supplies line. And after training there, we were posted to Corsham in Wiltshire oh, yeah. with the, <coughs> a big underground mine of, um, uh, it was baffling really, it was. It built into the hillside around uh, Corsham, the hillside of Wiltshire and there's all sorts of ammunition, everything you could mm. think of and it's a secret Nobody really knew about it but it was the main supply depot uh, for the army. army. Wow. So uh, anyway, we, we did that and uh, we were both in this Caution depot for about 12 months mm-hmm. and then we got split up which was always available and John was moved to a, a small ammunition depot In Shropshire, and um, I was put on a posting abroad, without knowing where we were going to. However, uh, the party company, me and John, and he was eventually uh, discharged from the army because of ulcers in his stomach. I continued with the ammunition services and uh, we went to nottingham on a, a, a leave to prior uh, to going uh, abroad However, in march 1941 uh, we were portioned aside abroad and we went to liverpool to join a convoy of uh, vessels destroyers and I've told about 30-odd vessels in this convoy, going abroad. Uh, some knew where they were going, but we didn't know where we were going. So we were on the Duchess of York, and uh, eventually sailed uh, one Mr. Morning, and uh, headed in the direction of America for four or five days avoiding the submarines of the Germans and then after about four or five days we headed due south for another four or five days before turning east and going to uh, West Africa, a place called uh, uh, Freetown, uh, Sierra Leone and uh, to take on water. We didn't go ashore there it was so blistering hot, too. Uh, the warmest place I've ever been to, including POW Live. For a few days to convoy then, we went south to Cape Town. Half the convoy went to uh, Cape Town and half of it went to Durban. Mm. Where we had a week's leave, as it were. We, we could go ashore and the locals Cape Town used to line up with the taxis and cars and and take us around the area showing us what it was like around there. after that we went to we rejoined our boats and the convoy split in split up into two. Half of it went to the Middle East and the other half went up to Burma to uh, Bombay in India and then uh, we uh, woke up one morning, uh, to be told, we were on our way to Singapore. There was no war out there, Singapore, at the time. So, off we went, and uh, went down to Colombo, and eventually to Singapore, Keppel Harbour, where we arrived early in May 1941. Of course, there's no war out there, as I say. We couldn't believe it. Uh, there was plenty of food, uh, we had good accommodation, and uh, we, we started to get used to Singapore. And um, I was, being a sportsman, I was playing tennis, cricket, football in the regimental uh, leagues that they had out there, because there's already a lot of men out there doing nothing really, on a train for the Japanese invasion even when it came and uh, quite honestly we didn't think it was ever going to come but it did. On the 8th of December uh, 1941 the Japanese, as you were, bombed Pearl Harbor. At the same time they invaded northern Malaya which each part and parcel of the Malay Peninsula that leads to Singapore. And they decided that, that was the way they were going to take Singapore, and go overland. So it was a, it's a, a, like a long peninsula, and they were coming through the jungles and uh, rubber plantations, and then going out to sea in boats or coming round lower down. Mm. So they were And circling the troops who were already up there. And uh, we were sending ammunition up to them, of course, keeping them supplied because I was in the base ordnance depot in Singapore, which is actually on the island. Singapore is an island, actually. Fairly small, but still still large enough. And uh, they were fighting a losing battle because. By this time, the the Prince of Wales had been sunk and their their air forces were practically non-existent as far as we were concerned and they had uh, tanks and uh, most of our troops were using uh, single-shot Enfield rifles Mm. and uh, the Japanese had automatics so although there was enough men out there we we weren't equipped uh, efficiently, really, to stop the rot. So slowly but surely it was uh, unstoppable. They kept down uh, Malaya to uh, Singapore. We, We put up quite a bit of resistance there. Because they had to cross what's called the Johor Straits, uh, which is a a, a water that surrounds Singapore and uh, we put a stop to it for a few days, Mm -hmm. but we're now in, we're we're getting into January and February now of of, of um, uh, uh, 1942. so this went on for a few days, and uh, on the Thursday, the 12th of February, 1942, we were instructed to uh, leave our barracks and go to try and defend the base ordnance depot, which never got round to because before that we were withdrawn to uh, Singapore Railway Station uh, on Friday the 13th of, uh, of February 1942. And uh, Saturday was spent sorting ourselves out, more or less. There, there, there were a few ships still left that they could move people. So a lot of the higher ranking people were moved during Friday night. Saturday night sorry, and uh, we were sent forward to new positions joining the regulars, the regular armour, but we weren't, as base ordnance people, we weren't trained as a fighting force. We were instructed to shoot any Japanese you saw. So we went uh, up Bucket Timmer Road, which is a road that runs from the city centre uh, northwards to the Causeway, where the railway line crossed. By that time, um, it, it, the Japanese were, were were coming coming onto the island in small numbers, because the Causeway had been blown up to a certain extent to provide to prevent, I should say, easy access to Singapore. But they eventually made it and, uh, on the Saturday on Bucket tomorrow Road, and uh, we were told to stop firing. This is uh, was about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, the 15th of, of uh, February 1942, because the British uh, forces, Lieutenant Percival, the head uh, was uh, entering into talks about a possible surrender mm-hmm. and the terms that would be applied. So we did as we were told, we stopped firing, and then about an hour or so later, we had instructions to put down our firearms and ammunition in piles that uh, General Percival had decided to uh, surrender forces and ammunition to the, to the um, Japanese. So, because by that time, the Japanese had taken over the reservoirs and um, electricity supplies on the island. So, uh, the following day, we were told to go to the centre of, of uh, Singapore City where they had what they call a padang, which is a vast open space of of grassland. And uh, we had further instructions. We duly got there and we instructed to go to an area of the island called Changi, where there's a new airport now. But we were told to go there and we, we, we walked all the way from the city centre to Changi, probably about 20 miles and, and when we got there we were absolutely demoralised and tired out and more or less uh, lay down where we could get and had a good sleep again waiting for further instructions, uh, which we arrived which uh, said that we had to Stay where we were, uh, find accommodation, and uh, we were captives. So uh, uh, we did that, and uh, we got used to eating rice. Because yeah. the food we were getting, by that time we were pretty hungry because we had not seen a decent meal for ages. The cooks started to try and cook rice and uh, we had all sorts of concoctions. <laughs> a sloppy rice with uh, stiff rice and uh, some rice you couldn't eat at all. But uh, they eventually got to know how to cook it, steam it and uh, it wasn't too bad in, in Changi because there was still quite an, a lot of food on the island mm. of uh, Singapore. It was very well stocked with food. And uh, we didn't live too badly then. So uh, we weren't doing very much uh, apart from being guarded by Korean guards. Uh, we were just getting through the days, waiting for further instructions, which eventually arrived in, in October. So we've been in Changi from February 42 to October 42 and uh, the Japanese had decided to move us up into Thailand which is a long, long way off and it uh, will be transported there on the, the one railway line that ran from Singapore through to Bangkok mm. uh, in cattle trucks and the, the journey took four days for four nights, and uh, there was no sanitary arrangements at all. It was diabolical. It was terrible, a terrible four days on. Eventually, when we had all oh, one meal a day, we stayed at various places in, in in Malaya on the way up, and we were allowed out to these cutthroats, and uh, the uh, Japanese had made arrangements for local people to uh, supply rice uh, for a meal of rice and um, a a few vegetables and uh, then on our way again to the next station anyway we eventually arrived at a place called Bampong which was where the new railway was going to start from uh, as a link off the main right, main line and run through to Burma um, which the uh, Japanese hoped to conquer of course and uh, when we arrived it was a monsoon season and uh, they already built, built some accommodation for us, which was mainly bamboo and atop roof Atup is a is a wide leaf. Of, of a tree that was bent in two and sewn together somehow to make tiles about a metre wide and lapped on top of each other, which was quite, quite good actually. And the uh, conditions we found ourselves in were pretty horrible. And the the, the cookhouses were hardly functioning, they had to keep moving because of the monsoon the season. season, season. It flood one area, then would flood another, and they keep moving their equipment and t- to somewhere where it's fairly dry, they could um, get fires going uh, to make it a meal, uh, which wasn't very appetising anyhow. But uh, we were there for two or three days and then marched to a place called Kanchanaburi in, uh, in Thailand. That, that was one of the places to be the start of the railway, but we went a bit further. We went to a place called Chung Kai, mm-hmm. which was on the River Kwai. To get to the River Kwai to Ch- Chung Kai, sorry, went across the river, and, and we could get just about get across without drowning. You could walk across. There. It was pretty deep, but uh, you could get across. And uh, we got to Junkai, where they'd already prepared uh, t- accommodation, as I've described, made out of bamboo poles right. and thatched roof tops. We were told that's going to be our base camp. We're allocated two or three miles of railway to uh, complete before moving on to put uh, up the through the jungle. Uh, the job itself was uh, pretty hard. We had to move earth, if we were building an embankment we had to move from earth from the side to the embankment. Or if we were moving, making it into cutting we had to dig out the cutting of course mm. or move the soil. So that was monotonous Um, Not much rice, not much food, Uh, it was pretty horrendous. But we got through it. We were given tasks, a task of moving uh, a cubic metre of soil per day, per man, in the hours of daylight, which were 6 o'clock in the morning to about 6 o'clock at night, 12 hours. We worked in groups of three. We had what we call co- rice sack uh, and bamboo pole uh, stretchers. We used to fill, and uh, one man would be digging and filling. We had two stretchers, and then the two men would carry the, the soil, dump it on the track, come back, and take the next one and that went on all day, and we used to rotate our our workload. He did a a stretch digging, and they did a stretch carrying. That that was day after day after day, until they got the level that the Japanese wanted. When we finished that, we um, we moved on to the next next, uh, section. Which meant walking uh, a few miles to another camp and do the same thing all over again. But um, the work was was monotonous, and uh, on on the the meals we were getting was inadequate. We got three meals of rice per day. The first meal in the morning would be. Uh, boil rice with a spoonful of sugar on it and that, that was the meal and at lunchtime parties from the cookhouse would bring out the rice in uh, four, four, uh, four gallon uh, uh, kerosene cans mm. that was used, used to carry kerosene and uh, we had our meal on site. And it took about 20 minutes, then back to work, and then back to the camp at night for another meal of rice. And uh, we used to call it juggle water. It was uh, vegetables boiled and that, but it was just like green water. It wasn't much use really. And uh, that went on day after day after day for three and a half years, moving on, digging. Also building bridges. We had to build a bridge. It went over a ravine. We had to build a bridge across it, which was mainly constructed of trees, which sawn down manually with a a two-meter saw. You know, going through it, felling it, and then we had teams of elephants with the tie mahouts. To drive them and drag these uh, tree trunks from the jungle to the the, railroad, uh, the ravine was where the Japanese engineers would uh, have them sawn into the lengths they wanted and start constructing bridges. So it could be anything really when you're on the side in, a, in the morning providing you're fit enough and by this time uh, malaria struck, and uh, dysentery, and various tropical diseases. Mm. But there'd be a parade for singing in the morning, and the Japanese would re- supervise it. they determined who should go on the working parties. But uh, often the uh, medical officers would say well this man's, not, this man's not fit to work 12 hours up in the jungle uh, in the heat of the day and uh, we want him excused for a couple of days while he got round off his uh, his malaria mm-hmm. or dysentery. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But um, it was hazardous that job. That went on for twelve months building the railway, and we we, were, we were finished it on time actually, but um, there was a lot of lives lost. Mm. The main thing was that you had to have a strong, very strong willpower to keep going. Otherwise, it had it. It was very depressing and uh, occasionally the Emperor's birthday or something like that, a day off. He had me day, that was it. We look forward to them. But it gives us a chance to get into the river, have a good wash down and uh, try to get the bedbugs out of our, our bed spaces. Yeah. And get round off dysentery, but you're more or less always in a state of dysentery. And um, malaria, as I say, kept striking and striking. I personally had 32 attacks of malaria in various degrees, some worse than others. Mm. But I got through that and you're lucky if you got a pinch of quinine, powdered quinine which you you had to get down somehow. Now we were using the river uh, for our cooking, it was our drinking water, it was also our bathing water. You used to have to boil the water before you you drank it and uh, boil it again. Mm. And then to be sure, boil it again because that was the main source of problems. With, with uh, your bowels, and uh, it was a, a question of survival, really, survival of the fittest.
0: How did you cope mentally with all that then? Uh, to endure all
1: that, you had to have the will to get through. Yeah. That was the main thing, and uh, keep each other uh, well. Like if you're your bed panel bed mate next to you and uh, there was about two or three hundred in a hut and there was about ten huts, you know. Uh, you'd have to look after your pal and uh, get his meals, bring his meals for him and things like that. And uh, so it was guys helping each other. Right. And there was a strong, very strong bond grew between prisoners of war. Very strong bond. As I say, we we eventually finished the, the the railway line and we came back uh, in open trucks. I was alright, that wasn't too bad, coming back again. And we, we crossed, we built a, a bridge called the Wumpo Bridge. which is a very long bridge. It was a work of art, really. And uh, when we were comp- uh, uh, building it, We were under the instructions of the Japanese engineers and uh, Korean guards. And uh, you'd be sawing down trees, Uh, elephants would be dragging them down to the site where where the Japanese wanted them. And they were cutting joints in and uh, putting uh, metal uh, bolts through to hold it together. But uh, rather rickety. In my opinion, anyway, we got over it. We came back. We, we got back to our base, base camp. where well, things were a bit easier, but the food wasn't any easier. Mm. Which is the main thing. But a um, fella called Leo Britt, he, he'd been in the, on the stage in London, and um, he was a marvellous man. He could remember a lot of the the storylines and uh, he used to be on some good shows. And there were also people who uh, who've been on uh, the stage. There was a fella called Frankie. He had uh, an accordion. He was a professional. He could play in any tune he thought of. And luckily, I was in the same camp as him quite often when we were leapfrogging each other yeah. camps. He, he would be there and he used to go around the huts playing his accordion uh, and I, by this time I built this, this guitar, of course, and I used to sing a few George Foreman <laughs> songs just to, and we move up, the, up the, um, the, the camp line and then back again and uh, keep trees up there. So things were quite a bit better then, but the illnesses and um, uh, and things happened. And, and at the critical moment, uh, cholera broke out, an epidemic of cholera. Mm. And you could leave your camp, leave in the morning. Two, or three or four or five people would have been moved onto a, a, a separate area because they had cholera. And they probably lasted a couple of days and, and, and went like that. They all got through uh, water uh, imperfections. Yeah. And uh, altogether there's about, about 15,000 died in the construction of the railway alone. There in uh, Walgrave Cemeteries, in Chunkai, which was our base camp, and Kanchanaburi, which was the number four group camp. So, uh, lost quite a lot of lives out there. I'm often asked, how how did I survive? And uh, you can't help but say, it was pure luck. You're either lucky or unlucky Mm. to to survive them. If if you're in a camp where there's no quinine, for example, it, it was deadly, malaria, a deadly disease cause it got into your mind, in your brain right. and uh it used to see off hallucinations. It was uh, miles away, different world altogether. So you uh, were lucky, yeah. really. I wow. said, I'm 99 now, so touch wood. I did all right. There's quite a few older than me. As a, as a doctor, in London, is by the name of Franklin, Dr. Bill Franklin, he is 105. Wow. We attended a, a service of remembrance a few years ago, Ronald and I, and um, we'd had a service on the Oscars Parade and did the usual walk from Oscars Parade past the War Memorial, to Westminster Abbey where we had a the meal and he walked it and Ronald was pushing me in, in uh, wheelchair. a wheelchair that I've got. I, I think I lost my legs in, in, on the tennis course at Lee on, on football field because I was mad on sport. Right. I used to play tennis uh, 3 or 4 times a, a week and I'd chase anything. <laughs> To get it back and not realising my legs would give way eventually, which they um, uh, have. That's more so sort of the, the railway finished. Now, there were so many people still left that the Japanese decided they'd give us another war effort that was building airstrips for the uh, fighter craft to, arrive, to take off and alight from. Mm-hmm in in Thailand. I was given one, along with hundreds of others, of course, in southern Thailand. And uh, but that wasn't a bad journey. We were decent... Uh, we were still on open trucks, but they weren't ex-catel trucks, and, and they used to stop for toilets and things like that. And we got down to southern Thailand, a place called Petchaburi and uh, built a, an airstrip there from uh, January 1945 till the end of July in 1945, when uh, it was finished. Of course, the war finished a few weeks after, and uh, the first plane to arrive was a Dakota. And uh, we flew from there to Rangoon, where we went into uh, the various medical hospitals there and uh, given the once over and uh, allotted for uh, trips back to England. And again, I was lucky there. I got on the first ship that arrived in Southampton Mm. in uh, October, 8th of October 1945, the first ship back in England. So I was lucky there. I've kept pretty well since. I, 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 I was a tennis champion uh, on a couple of occasions right. at Lee. And, uh, are they grass courts? Are they in Lee? The well, the, no, the are uh, shale courts. Right. Right. But uh, when uh, a fellow of mine, while we were in Singapore, in that period where there's no war, uh, a fellow from Leicester called Sid Hallerland, he was a good player. And we used to, there's only about two of us, and there's about four courts. Everyone didn't take up sport, of course. Some got back on the bed and had a siesta. Yeah. But we used to go play in the last hour before the sun went down in Singapore. Eventually, we, got, we entered an open competition at the Singapore Chinese Recreation Club. I mean, we hadn't realised it, but they were playing on lawn and the ball didn't get up at all <laughs> and we, we lost miserably. I think we lost 6-1, 6-1, you know, but it was a good experience, yeah. you know. I said, yeah, I'm back to tell the tale. I might have missed one or two things out <laughs> while I was going through so I will just exercise my mind. I told you about the railway trip from Singapore to Thailand, it was four days and four nights that was horrible. That was the worst four days I spent. Uh, whilst we were in, Sing- in uh, Changi, we were given forms to fill in, saying we wouldn't try and escape. But between me and you, there's no chance of escaping no. uh, out there, because all of us are the Chinese, Malays, or people up in Thailand, the Thais. So you should soon be recognised. <laughs> and then they they probably put price on the, our ads. If, if, uh, if they spotted any Englishman yeah. walk around the street, let us know, We will give you so many pounds <laughs> to do it. So I never tried it on myself. And uh, the forms... Not, anyway, we, uh, we didn't sign them, these forms. So in consequence, where we'd occupied a very big area in Changi, well, all the area of Changi, spread out, and plenty of room, we were concentrated in a, what to have been a, a barrack block belonging to one of the, arm, the army battalions out there. I think it was Olig a, a, uh, Island, Sutherland Island, mm-hmm. one, one camp. And we were all put in one camp. We were even sleeping on the parade grounds, yeah, and we were digging the parade area into slit trenches for toilet requirements, because that was the only type of toilet requirement requirement we had, and it was always slit trenches, mm. even in the jungle, there were slit trenches horrible things, uh, maggots crawling up okay. the side of them and uh, it was uh I said previously horrendous. I told you about this ukulele still on view in the Imperial War Museum North, uh, Salford. Yeah. And uh it's open every day. And uh, when I donated I I, I specified that I didn't want it put in the back room somewhere, I wanted it to be on view. They've honoured that requirement ever since then. We we get back there from time to time, Mm. doing little Mm. speeches, talking to children who were visiting and things like that. What do you think that ukulele represents? For me, it was, uh, I've always liked making things. And uh, since I come back I made a selling ding here right. to sell it on Lee Flash and uh, from parts which I had to trim and put together and and that and uh, I was satisfied when I made it. And That was so satisfaction. As a consequence I found I was taking off other jobs right. to be in the concert party. as was part of the orchestra. And uh or doing songs in a group, mm-hmm. you know, singing George Formby songs. Because yeah. a lot of people knew George Formby. a lot of people in Lancashire up in the POW world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another part of life, right there. Well, the other thing was that, unfortunately, I lost my best friend, uh, my army best friend. He was a staff sergeant like myself, and he, he came from Grimsby. Mm. Now he didn't go up onto the railway when the parties were first sent up there. I think he was ill at the time, and uh, he didn't come up until the last minute when they were pushing to get the railway finished. And they were sending a lot of people who should never have been sent up there, all, all sick, already sick. And he, he, he was a cholera victim and unfortunately he's still up there. He was cremated up in Thailand because they, they used to burn all the cholera victims. Mm. It was so serious right there. So. Have you ever had the opportunity to go back? Yes, I've been back twice. Yeah. Uh, I did a uh movie. I've also done about five or six albums of photographs out there, visiting the Wargrave Commission's nice. uh, uh, graves, which are uh, immaculately maintained out there. And they have the record of Les's uh, um, death. Uh, up, up in the town. It was near the Burma border then. Nice. I never got to the Burma border. The furthest I got was the two, what they call two two six kilometer camp, because there's no no, no uh, villages or towns up in the uh, in in Thailand, especially right. up in yeah. the north, because the Thais and the Burmese don't get on very well together. He got a bit further than me but he unfortunately didn't come back Poor as a great part of mine. We used to, uh, again going back to the uh, period when there's no war out there, we used to write at night in uh, a cinema called the cafe and there were the first first class films, mm-hmm. they were always up to date. just released. They were flown out to Singapore on uh, these flying boats right. from, uh, uh, from America, from Pearl Harbor Way. And used to, the plane used to land every day, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then take off the following morning, take post and stuff back from Singapore. Until the war started, of course, then that, that stopped. But last night it was you had from and which was called the Union Jack Club uh, in Singapore. And you could get staircase, chips, peas and onions, fried onions uh, for next to nothing. Yeah. The they these films or The Road to Bali and you know the Ben Crosby films and all for, for, we had some good nights out together, the man the man, and lads. Yep. I've been mistaken out, Ron? Maybe how you constructed your ukulele. I don't think you've touched on how you made the ukulele. Oh, yes. Well, again, a lot came into it. Uh, Before I went up onto the railway, we were given jobs around Singapore for the Japanese, either working in the warehouses, the dockside work warehouses. Unloading those ships that were bringing stuff in by that time, or um, building memorials to the, the few Japanese which had died in the process of t- taking Singapore. And uh, I was I think in June. I was put on a on a party to work at Kranji, distinct uh, from Changi. I all these words about. Air then, Kranji. and that was near the the uh, naval wireless station yeah and uh, there's a deserted village uh, near to that place and it had been, it had been bombed by the Japanese and uh, I was walking through one day and uh, I saw the broken down mandolin. And the gears that you used to tighten up the strings yeah. were still in tight, so I took those off, and I thought, I love about making a, a banjo because I had a, a, a ukulele bef- before the war, and I had I bought one on the way out to Singapore at yeah. Ka- Cape Town, and to just to amuse myself yeah. playing theatre Then I looked around the. To find wood, suitable wood to make a sound box, and uh, and the fret to take the yeah. frets, things like that, and uh, put it all together over about three months. I found nails that are long enough for, to to use, you know, thin mm-hmm. enough, and um, eventually made it and got it tuned up. <laughs> and uh, brought it back. I thought it was a bit of a job bringing it back <laughs> because you, you always had your kit bike and you have a sack uh, um, uh, to carry and your rifle. Mm. So um, I, I had my hands full of getting it back. Anything else on Where did you get the strings from, That? Oh, the strings. Well, the strings were telegraph wire you couldn and take the separate strands inside the tiger wire and uh, I tried them out and uh, found it worked all right, so I used telegraph wire <laughs> to make to, put, to uh, yeah. create the strings. The bridges I were easier to make the bridges on a wooden with four slots on for the four strings and uh no problem there. Did you
0: have to tune it
1: by ear? Yes, Did that's you right, yeah. Ear? And uh, G-C-A-A, uh, the, the, the notes of the four strings right. used. And uh, say used, used to tune it to the tune of, My dog's got fleas. My dog's got fleas. <laughs> and it's used to turn, you know. And then you could tell <laughs> when they played the chord, whether it was right or not, you yeah, know, it's yeah. either flat to sharp or something like that. <laughs> That's more or less the, the end of my experiences. Yeah. The worst thing was the food, of course, and the intolerable workload. Mm-hmm. Working through monsoon seasons, it, the soil wouldn't come off your spade, you know. Oh, I know, uh, is a meter stick? Um, each guard had what they called a metre stick and when we finished our task, or thought we'd finished our task for the day, we'd tell them we'd finished and uh, they'd measure it. And uh, it'd be three cubic metres of course if it was right, but if it was wrong, that was it. Out come the stick, it became a beating stick. Right. Bash you on the back with this meter stick. Now that could be anything from an inch, half an inch, uh, you know, to to, to wipe you with. In the mornings, uh, we had to count in, in in Japanese, which was something like this. Ichi ni san si go roko, sichi achiku ju. That's up to ten. And it just repeats. Ichi Jew itchy is 11 one uh, and then itchy, Jew is 10 yeah and then and oh another one make it 11 <laughs> so if, if, if stopped in the sequence of going along the line it's in near San Siegel, Rook, or even Im can use a few words now. <laughs> Um, You used to get a slap across the face because you you hadn't uh, learned the numbers. (laughs) But uh, they'd give you a slap across the face or another and you just could not retaliate. It was fatal to retaliate. Just finished reading the book now, or Ronald, uh, nearly finished it. It'd been written by Colonel Outram, who was the colonel in charge of uh, Chunkai, and it uh, more or less confirms what I've just told you really, yeah. that the, the, the senior uh, officers were moved to Taiwan or somewhere and the, the Lieutenant-Colonels and below were taken prisoners of war with us yeah. and they suffered the same anxieties and illnesses that we did. And Ronald's enjoyed reading that, haven't you? Yeah, I read it too because of his eyes. He yeah, reads me a I couple of chapters each day. I've got loads of books, and Dad has, and that's the best account, true to life. All oh, right. Confirm, confirm what my dad's told you. It's right. I'll write that down that before one? we go to on that one. one? I'm getting further questions, don't I? I just
0: want to ask you one thing. What, what? You've obviously been through a lot of tough times. What advice have you got? Any advice? What you give people? Who are going through any tough times or dealing with difficult th- yeah, difficulties? Not beginning
1: one. Not beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. He's asking you, have you any advice you can give to people who are going through tough times, given what you've oh, been well, through? Well, it's very difficult, and because you don't know the exact circumstances. Yeah, of but the thing is, is to is, is to keep strong, keep goodwill things can change and you probably may have change if you've got the willpower and the ambition to to improve life that you're suffering at the present time but that's the the main thing um our motto this uh, um association for more is to keep going, the spirit that kept us going. So which is quite a good motto yeah, yeah. when you come to think about it yeah. and what you experience. You had that spirit to keep going, that willpower and uh, it's been a good association On It's only just now that the the um, small uh, branches are closing down and there's not a lot of us left, of course, Now, Mainly all in the 90s. And I I more or less suffered the same things because we all suffer the same. Yeah. There's no discrimination, you all suffer the same. Sillings, illnesses, lack of food. it It was a grim, grim life. I wouldn't like to go through it again, but uh, I got through it. Well, you did it so we don't have to go through
0: it again. You know? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing story, Tom,
1: and thanks for letting us uh, yeah, all right. come in and but, listen yeah.
0: to your talk. Yes, I do, uh, yeah. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Tom telling us all about what he endured during World War II and how he came through it and the mindset that he used. Um, I'd like to personally thank Ron Boardman, Tom's son, for allowing us and giving us permission to use this this audio um, to put the conversation out into the wider world for other people to try and benefit from it. I think there are points in there that we can all take away and use in our lives when dealing with any kind of adversity or stress. Thank you very much to the Boardman family again for letting us use it. Thank you and we'll see you next time.